a Podcast One production. This is Global Truths with Dr Keith Souter. Talking today about Islamic State, the war in Syria, uh, we have seen, Keith, over the last few months, some misleading views, it would seem, about the state of the war over there. That's right. So President Trump is talking about the collapse of the Islamic State in Syria and that he is now trying to withdraw the American troops from deployment in those operations against Islamic State. The deep state, by the way, are not allowing him to do that. So he's not actually going to be withdrawing the troops from home. But I thought what would be useful is to just look at where we are in this uh, war against the Islamic State. So the Islamic State is unusual because it's it's an Islamic group breaking away from al-Qaeda, which remains a global brand, right? It's it's not linked to any particular country. Osama bin Laden, at the time of the 9-11 terrorist attack in the United States, 2001, was based in Afghanistan, but that was purely coincidental because the um, Taliban had given him sanctuary in Afghanistan. It was not a particularly Afghani movement. In fact, his troops were called the Afghani Arabs. So al-Qaeda is a global brand. Islamic State is different. So there was bad blood, so to speak, between the al-Qaeda movement and the really, really hardline element within the al-Qaeda movement, and they then broke away and led by a guy called Baghdadi, al-Baghdadi, about whom we know very little. We think at one point he was held captive by the Americans in probably Afghanistan, but we know very little about him. He doesn't make major appearances because he knows that's a bit of a, a life hazard. People who make major appearances get tracked down by the American drones and get killed. So we're not even sure if the guy's dead or alive. There have been various news reports that he's been killed and then he pops up again with another broadcast. So the actual leader of the Islamic State who regards al-Qaeda as being feeble, so al-Baghdadi decided to create a separate movement, so that's the Islamic State, and actually proclaim a piece of territory. So this makes him different from bin Laden, who was managing a global brand. So Islamic State created a state which straddled the borders of Iraq and Syria. So if if you cast your mind back to 2003, we had this very stupid invasion by the US, UK and Australia of Iraq, overthrew Saddam Hussein, which created a vacuum. That gave the opportunity for al-Qaeda to get started in Iraq. Then you get the falling out within al-Qaeda and al-Baghdadi decides to create his own separate area within Iraq and calls it the Islamic State. So technically, I don't think there's actually been an Islamic State since the time of the Prophet Muhammad. But what's the idea behind the Islamic State? Like, Where do they actually, theoretically, what what do they want to be if they were to realise their dream, Keith, what would yeah. it what would it look like? Al Baghdadi took the view that um, this he was the the long prophesized Messiah, and that he was uh, calling on all Muslims around the world, well Sunni Muslims around the world, to follow him in creating a separate Islamic state. So, in other words, putting the clock back to the days of the Prophet Muhammad, who um, maintained control over a piece of Saudi Arabia. So what, that's what he was doing. So he claimed territory in a way that bin Laden never tried to do. 
So he created that separate territory and he flourished for a while. He was living off the oil revenues that were being exported because the piece of land that they straddled contained oil wells. It's in northern Iraq, northern Syria. So he was exporting oil through Turkey and so was actually making money. He was a flourishing state. Mm. Uh, What is interesting, of course, from an historical point of view is that almost all the borders of the Middle East have been drawn up by Europeans. The Arabs have never drawn up their own borders. They've always been drawn up for them by others. And, of course, the biggest realignment came at the end of World War I when the British and the French broke up the Turkish, the Ottoman Empire. And so Baghdadi said, we are now putting the clock back to when the British and the French tried to break up the Arab world. I'm going to recreate the Arab world, starting in this first piece of the caliphate, the Islamic State. And so it would then spread. And so he then encouraged people to move into the Islamic State. So we had people come, leaving from Australia, by the way. We've got Australians who moved there, but you got them from all over, including the recruitment of young women because he needed brides for his warriors. So they brought a lot of young women in. They were, they were seduced over the internet in the same way that paedophiles are grooming children. So they were finding out ways of grooming young girls to go to live within the territory of the Islamic State. Very sophisticated operation. The magazine itself was a very swish magazine called Dubek. Dubek is where, for some Muslims, the final showdown between the Islamic world and Rome, which is, if you like, the Christian West, that's where the final showdown was going to be. So in the Christian tradition, it's a a little further up the... Uh, or a little further south along the coast at Armageddon, Megiddo. But for the Islamic point of view, it's a little higher up the coast at a place called Dubek. And that was the name of his magazine. A very high quality production indeed. So they were flourishing for a couple of years. The problem with the Islamic State is that they annoyed everybody. (laughs) And that was the reason for his downfall. Mm -hmm. That in fact... um, it was secretly being supported by members of Saudi Arabia. Uh, remember, we keep going back to Saudi Arabia and some of the families who export. So dodgy. So dodgy. Um, but generally speaking, the, the countries in that immediate region, so that's the government of Iraq, the government of Syria, uh, plus Iran, uh, who, of course, is Shia, not Sunni, because the Islamic State didn't like Shia didn't like Yazidis and various other religions, didn't like Christians. So they were just making enemies of everybody. Mm. So it was really only a matter of time before the rest of the world combined to get rid of them. So the Americans were involved, the Russians were involved. And so the Islamic State is in the process, geographically speaking, of being broken up. So it will no longer hold any piece of territory. That's the good news. The bad news, as a global brand... It continues to exist, and that's why we're going to have continuing problems with it. But then again, yes, it exists, but it doesn't seem to be nearly as strong, Keith, as it was, uh, you know, a year, two years ago when we had all these Westerners just rushing to to join them. It's not nearly as popular in Western countries now to do that kind of thing, is it? Um, well, Western, well, Westerners can't get there, of course. The Islamic State has geographically has disappeared. They used to go through... Uh, Turkey. It was a remarkable Canadian documentary done about young girls who were recruited via cat videos. So girls would be looking at cat videos and suddenly in cyberspace, 
a person would come along beside them, so to speak, and say, oh, the Prophet Muhammad liked cats as well. What? And, that's, and that would begin a process of seduction. And those girls would be able to travel from Canada across to Istanbul and then be recruited in Istanbul and then carried, taken over the border into the Islamic State. Now, you can't do that now. You can't get into, well, as I say, that territory has disappeared mm. uh, from the map. The problem we've got, by the way, is what do we do about reintegrating the people who are foolish enough to go? The British government is depriving such people of their citizenship. They're just simply saying, you guys have left us. You're no longer British subjects. We're not going to take you back. So there are real issues about whether or not you allow these people to come back or go back to their original countries because, after all, they've become trained killers. Now, they would say, oh, no, we've forgotten about that. We're not going to continue the war. But but it's very difficult for any politician to allow these people to go back into Britain or France or the United States, Canada, with the skills of being a terrorist, and then for them later on to commit acts of terrorism. Because people will say, why were they allowed back in? Yeah, God. What's the philosophy with Australia's government? What do we know at the moment? Because, well, ours is sort of... Ours is a bit confused, I've got to say, about the whole citizenship issue. But generally speaking, we we are in alignment with the with the British and the Americans, namely that we're really hesitant about letting them come back in, even if they say, "Oh no, we've seen the error of our ways." But that's going to be a continuing issue, the extent to which we bring them in. But don't forget, they've also had children. The the young women then became young mothers, so they have now got children, babies, that they would like to see brought back in. But, of course, the British would say, no, no, then they're now Syrian subjects or Iraqis. You can't bring them back in. That's an issue as we speak at this very moment, which is not being settled very easily with the United Kingdom. And luckily, Australia doesn't have quite so many. Remember, it's more difficult if you're in Australia to get or to have gotten to the Islamic State area. But in Britain, you literally got in a train. (laughs) And drove. Uh, Yeah, or you drove, yes. Or you went in Eurostar, which will get you across to Paris. Then you came with another train that would get you into Istanbul. Mm. This is Global Truth with Dr. Keith Sood. We're talking today about the state of the war in Syria, the Islamic State, um, because we get, we're going to get conflicting sort of reports. You know, Donald Trump's saying, oh, it's it's all over. There's been a significant um, success on the part of the Americans, uh, particularly in the coalition. Um, but then it's just really, it's, it's they're, they're just, they're hidden away, but they're still very active, Keith. Absolutely. I think that's a very good way to summarise it. So it's a continuing problem. And, of course, standing back from it, is the fact that some of us think there is a long war underway, to use an expression from the Americans. So the idea is that the Islamic world is undergoing its own turmoil and there will be a continuing range of issues that could run on. Well, General Leahy in in Canberra has said it could run on for 100 years. So we're talking of that order. Now, if you're going to talk about 100 years, when did it start? For me, it began in 1979 with the Iranian Revolution because it was the rise of the extremism within Iran, which is Persia and and the Shia, which then triggered uh, a reaction within the conservatives in Saudi Arabia who decided to undergo their own fundamentalist revolution and decided to learn from what the Iranians were doing in terms of exporting violence. So 1979, which means that we've got another quite a few more years to go, 50-odd, 60-odd years to go. 
God. It, exactly. So it's a very <laughs> open-ended struggle. But if you look at the European equivalent, um, which began in 1517 with Catholics and Protestants, that didn't finish until 1648. Indeed, it's still echoing in Northern Ireland, I've got to say. But, <laughs> but do you think their brand, you talked about the strength of the brand before, do you think that can still maintain its veracity until then? No. In the same way that nobody in 19, well, 1990, or even the year 2000, was predicting that there'd be a group called the Islamic State. Who knows what manifestations we will have in the coming 60 years. And where the resurgence will come about exactly. as well. Yep. Let's talk about the Syrian story at the moment then because you've got Bashar al-Assad who yep. is still in power there despite all the controversies surrounding this whole war for the last, how long has it been, 12 years? And it began in 2011. So oh. it starts off with the Arab Spring, 2010, right? So there's Mohammed Boussisi who then kills himself out of desperation. He wasn't a terrorist, wasn't expected to go to heaven with all the virgins, etc. He just despaired of living, set light to himself. And then this triggered a reaction amongst other young Tunisians on Facebook. It's called the first Facebook revolution. And they were talking among themselves about the despair that young people feel in Tunisia. And so from Tunisia, we then get the overthrow of the government by young people. It's interesting. Those of us who watch the Arab world did not see this coming. I'm in good company. The CIA didn't see it either. So <laughs> I... <laughs> Me and the CIA, we're blind to these things. The person who did, I forget the guy's name, was actually a demographer. And he said, I'm just looking at the figures of young people. You know, if you look at the West now, all those young revolutionaries that we had in the 60s and 70s, they're all old people now. They're no longer revolutionary. But instead what you've got now is a bulge, a baby bulge coming to adulthood within the Arab world and within Iran. So he said, keep an eye on the Middle East. I think there will be instability in the Middle East. And he got it spot on. Now, he didn't know it was going to be Mohammed Boussisi or whatever, but he got it right. Got a lot of angry, young, unemployed people. They're tech savvy. They can communicate with each other within each country, but they can't see a future for themselves. And there's a global problem of unemployment, et cetera, automation, all these sorts of issues. So it begins in uh, Tunisia, the government is overthrown. It then flows across into Libya, where Colonel Gaddafi says that he's going to put his foot down. Of course, we end up with Britain and France and the United States overthrowing Gaddafi, and we've ended up with chaos in Libya, which is why you have people now streaming out of Africa into Europe, and they go via Libya. You couldn't have done that in Colonel Gaddafi's day. Nobody in their right mind would have tried to get into Libya unauthorised. But now, because of the chaos, you've got, I think, three different factions claiming to control the country. So Libya is in chaos. Obama has said this is one of his biggest mistakes, breaking up Libya. Mrs Clinton, by the way, says it is one of her successes. But Obama says, no, 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 I think that's one of my failures. So you've got Libya that's in chaos. Egypt had a people power revolution and that has now gone back under military control. So they flirted with democracy for a while, but they're back with a strong person, a new military leader. In Syria, you get the same process of a rebellion by people and Assad says, I am not going to flee the country. I'm going to stay and fight. And he called on the support of the Russia and also Iran. So Syria is a country governed by a Shia minority, although the really Sunni-Shia split is not that, was not that pronounced in Syria. 
but he got support from um, Hezbollah, from Iran, and from Russia. The Americans, beginning under Obama, never really knew what they were doing in Syria. They did get involved and at one point were supporting the Islamic State because they just got confused with all the various factions. The Russians were always clear what they wanted to do. They wanted to keep Assad in power, not because they liked Assad, but because Assad had treated the Russians well. So they had their, their dog in the fight, if you like. The Americans were never really sure about what they were doing. So it's been a chaotic time. And when Trump in 2016 promised to get out of Syria in the election campaign, I thought, good on you. But, of course, he still hasn't been able to implement that promise. Uh, so America is still bogged down in Syria. So the Assad regime has stood up to the Arab revolt and has come through it. The country is destroyed. You've got perhaps a, a million, two, three million people living in refugee camps, some over the border in Lebanon. Almost a million, of course, remember, walked into Germany and other countries in that part of Europe. So they've lost a lot of their talent. It's going to take them decades to rebuild, thanks to, to the confusion we've had. So it started off as a people power revolution. The problem always with the people power revolution is that the youngsters mean well, they are idealistic, but it's the hard men of violence, to use a phrase from Northern Ireland, it's the hard men of violence who know how to organise a rebellion. Right, So you use the energy that's whipped up by the young people and then it's the professionals that move in at the last minute and take over control. So if you look at Egypt, for example, you had all these enthusiastic young people overthrowing the Mubarak regime, supported by the military. Yeah. You then have an election. The young people don't know how to fight an election. Who does know how to fight the election? It's the um, Islamic Brotherhood. Um, who over decades have been building up a network of welfare, supply, et cetera, to underprivileged families. They just simply called in all of their debt, so to speak. And so a lot of people voted for this uh, fundamentalist Islamic group. They then came to power. And so the military had to remove them. And, of course, their leader is in jail now. So it, it, the, And the same, if you like, in Syria, the young people began the struggle but then it was pushed to one side by the professional fighters in Al-Qaeda and the Islamic State and Hezbollah. So Syria then descended into a civil war from which it's going to take an awfully long time to recover. So we're going to be paying for the Islamic State for decades to come with all the amount of suffering that it has inflicted in that part of the world. So what happens next, Keith? For the Islamic State, my guess is they will continue their struggle. They are building up alliances with groups like Boko Haram, which is in West Africa. Boko Haram means it is forbidden, which means it is forbidden to educate young girls, etc. That's a phrase. And they're the ones, of course, that uh, mastermind the kidnapping of... Young girls. ...from schools That's and right. take them into the forest. Take them into the forest because they need brides for their warriors. So um, you've got a variety of Islamic groups that are set up. Remember, this is the, this is the long war. So you've got a lot of countries with dissident Muslims, not all of them, of course. Most Muslims, you know, just want to be left alone to live an ordinary life. But you've got some people who are vulnerable to these extremist views, get recruited, and they will then continue the struggle. As always, hugely insightful, Keith. Thank you. This has been Global Truths with Dr. Keith Souter. It's recorded in the studios of Podcast One. Producer is me, Kate Mack. Production assistance by Liv Proud. Audio production by Darcy Thompson. 
And for more episodes, head to podcastone.com.au or download the Podcast One app.